Welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Rice. This is the show that's all about taking your health, body, and life to that next level. And today is going to be about your health, specifically your joint health, because my guest, Dr. John Russin, is both a strength coach and a physical therapist. And we're going to discuss how to get strong, how to be fit, but also how to remain pain-free because one of the worst things that happens to people who are engaged in working out strenuously are injuries. And I know that from firsthand experience. I also uh, know that when you get injured, whether that's from the weight room or like I had with my car accident where I have three herniated discs in my neck, things change and you become much more focused on how to maintain your health instead of trying to snatch your body weight or two times your body weight or whatever it is. That's that's an Olympic lift for those of you who don't know what a snatch or power clean or whatever is. So this is going to be a very important discussion on how to maintain a pain-free body as you get in better shape. Before I get to the interview, I want to tell you about our legendary 90-day fat loss blueprint. I know I've talked about a fat loss course, but we decided to do something a little bit different. We wanted to do something with a more hands-on approach, and I got to tell you, I'm super excited about this. So if you've been following a diet or just trying to eat clean or perhaps drink putting butter in your coffee in the morning or whatever it is that you've been doing and you haven't been seeing the results from your nutrition approach, this is going to help you. If you've been in the weight room, busting your butt, working out hard, lifting weights, doing cardio, and your muscles have gotten bigger, but the belly fat has stayed the same, this is something you're going to want to be a part of. If you're serious about getting results, and it really is for dedicated people because you'll be working with me. So if you want to get in on that because we're only taking a limited number of people, go to legendarylifepodcast.com, click on the store, go to the legendary 90-day fat loss blueprint, and click to sign up for the waiting list. So make sure you do that if you're dedicated. If you've already been working hard, but you haven't been seeing the results you want, make that happen. Let's do this. I promise 100% results with this program. All right, I know that's a strong claim, but I am willing to back it up or I'll give you your money back. It's that simple, provided you follow the program. So that's what I'm offering right now. So let's get back to the interview. We've got some great stuff to cover because you're going to learn about mobility. You're going to learn about how to stay injury-free. You're going to learn about how to progress in your workouts while maintaining healthy joints. We're going to cover stretching. We're going to cover mobility. We're going to cover foam rolling and more in this episode with Dr. John Russin. Dr. John Russin, welcome to the Legendary Life Podcast. Ted, man, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And for those people listening who aren't in the fitness industry, just to let them know about you. You are both a strength coach and a doctor of physical therapy. And you've just come off of this seminar tour where you've been literally traveling around the world, if I'm not mistaken, with Christian Thibodeau, who's been on the show a couple times. And you guys have been helping fitness 
coaches and strength coaches step their game up, correct? Yeah, actually, we just kicked this thing off. So I've been traveling the last four weeks, three of which were in the US with our two-day seminar dates with Chris. And then I was at the NSCA conference last weekend, but we are going straight through 2017 here. So we're going to hit a couple more US dates. We're going to be headed to Australia, to Asia, and hopefully into Europe too. So we have a lot more on the docket here. Excellent. And I just wanted everyone to know that's the type of person that you are. That's the type of people who we like to get on the show. People who are not just uh, academically trained, but doing their thing at the top of their game. So thanks so much for being here today, man. Yeah, uh, it's my pleasure. And you said it, you know, it's not just about like academic accolades. Like obviously there is some advantages to having some foundational knowledge in exercise science, physiology, and anatomy. But really when you're looking at real world results, we need to be looking at what coaches are doing in the trenches, uh, the kind of results that they're actually getting with human beings that they're training in person. Yeah, there tends to be a little bit of a discrepancy sometimes between the academic types and the coaches, right? Oh, there's no doubt about it. You know, you have the research side of things, which is really important. And every single coach, they should know that the research exists. But it's what you do after you know the data is out there, which is what makes results for you know individuals presenting in front of you. Yeah, so important. And uh, as a coach who is not an academic, but who has had to learn those things to, to get better results. I definitely appreciate both sides. And John, let's let's back up a little bit uh, because I feel like you and I, we, we could, it's the first time talking to you. I could just jump into shop talk right away. <laughs> but the theme of this interview, what I think you can really bring to the table for the, the non-fitness professionals who are listening, the, the people who are looking to get into great shape, most of them are 40 plus, 40s, 50s, so even some 60s. And they're looking to be strong, to be fit, and also to be pain-free. And sometimes, actually most of the time, those things don't go together, uh, at least the way it plays out for most people who are, who are in the gym working hard. Before we get to that, I'd love to hear a little bit about what got you started in this? What got you to get into strength and conditioning? Why'd you get your doctorate of physical therapy? And just how did this start for you, this journey? Uh, it's pretty uneventful to be absolutely honest. You know, I was an athlete growing up. I had some really great influences in my own household. My mom and dad were both university professors and my dad was actually an athletic director for 27 schools in the Western New York greater area. Wow. So I was thrown right into it, you know, from birth on, uh, being in the weight room, being in the gym and always being active myself. So I, I took my, uh, my skills in baseball to a division one level and then after that, I uh, started getting my first career opportunities in the world of strength and conditioning right after that in the high school sector, the collegiate sector. And then that led me into graduate school where I continued to coach. And then months after graduate school was over, I uh, shipped out to Southern California, uh, did a mentorship with one of uh, you know a top coach in the industry at the time. And from there, I've had uh, multiple offices, multiple facilities, and we are currently running the, the hybrid performance model in Madison, Wisconsin, where I see athletes and we really deal with a lot of people that are hitting plateaus or just struggling with staying healthy. And I think both of those things definitely go together. Yeah, that's cool. So you had this athletic career and you made it to the, the D1 level in baseball. Was it an injury that sidelined you and that's what got you into 
physical therapy? <laughs> Isn't it always? Yeah, right? So if you talk to like nine out of 10 physical therapists will tell you that they had a really life-changing experience going through the rehab process. That wasn't me because I did have a career-ending injury in my junior year of collegiate baseball, but I never went to rehab. I never went to physical therapy a day in my life before I walked through the doors of my graduate school for the first day of class. What I did was I took uh, strength and conditioning and I worked alongside of a coach uh, at the local university. And that's what was able to actually rehab my injuries better than anything before. So that really opened up my minds to the preventative model of really, really great strength and conditioning programming and the power of preventing these kind of injuries uh, that happen before we ever get put behind the eight ball and have to dig ourselves out of these painful functional deficit holes that we get into. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely excited to, uh, to dig into that. And I guess let's start with what common mistakes do you see when, when someone's in the gym, they're in their late thirties, their early forties or late forties, and they make this commitment, you know, I've been working on my career, but I've been neglecting my health time to get back into shape and get up from my desk job, my, you know, as an accountant or attorney or whatever it is and, and, and get this handled. What do you see as the common mistakes that that person makes on their journey to getting fit? Usually I see like the balls out zero to a hundred from kind of mentality that people jump into. Have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You know, AKA the quick fix. You know, this six weeks is really going to revolutionize my life, but it's not about six weeks. It's about six years. It's about three decades. It's about laying down foundations that are not only sustainable, but they're self-sufficient. So many people just go down this path and they burn themselves out. You know, that's a huge, huge thing in our industry right now as we get into this quick fix mentality and two things happen. Mentally and emotionally, we burn out or physically, we end up broken down and hurt and unable to do the things physically that we want to do to keep this kind of goal set moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, man, you know, I don't know where that comes from. I had to learn that the hard way. How do you tell people to focus on the longer, how do you make that mindset shift for them when they're not with you? Because obviously when you get them in person, you have a sit down, talk, look them eye to eye and really explain to them the process of how it works. But when we're putting out content like this, and, and I know you're a prolific writer, you've got so many articles out, great information, big fan of your work. How do you convey that message of taking, hey, listen, you want to be fit now, but you might want to be fit 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Yeah, you know, it's always about putting the horse in front of the cart. So for me, I look at the horse being the ability to move pain-free. So literally having physical autonomy where you are not causing yourself pain. (laughs) Nine out of 10 people, again, are going to come in with some sort of pain point, no matter if you're an athlete or you're just in that general fitness consumer, people are just in chronic pain. You know, that's part of our industry today, especially with our Western society. But above and beyond that, you look at trying to get people out of pain and seeing, putting in programming methods and the type of type of schemes that we use in order to make a step-by-step approach where they can actually sustain the kind of gains that they're making. 
And when you talk about uh, staying pain-free for a lifetime or even uh, keeping off body fat after you have had the initial loss, it's about sustainability. And more so than that, it's about creating habits. It's not going to be this magical cookie cutter program that's going to revolutionize your life in six to eight weeks. It's going to be about the one to two things that you can learn about your body that no coach could ever see you know, with the naked eye. And then you use those habits that you formed for the rest of your life. So every month, two months, three months, whatever the training block is, it's about just making one step forward in, in order to learn something more about yourself that will be able to work for a lifetime. Yeah, I love that approach. And it can be a bit of a harder sell because of our quick fix mentality in the US and uh, you know, really around in Western society in general. I have uh, people from a bunch of different countries, Switzerland, France, Germany, and uh, you, know, you see it pop up again and again, even outside the US. And man, I mean, I love that progress. Like, hey, let's focus on making progress. And but but you can get in shape much faster if you just go balls to the wall. How do you talk to people about that? Or do you do like a, a an intense block of training for them to to help them get motivated with some short uh, some progress? I mean, there's definitely the feel good effect that somebody gets from having sweat on their face, busting their balls in the gym. And the big secret is that you can still work really hard. You can lift heavy weights. You can do soul-crushing cardio if you want. We just need to make sure that everything's fine-tuned to the point where you're not fighting yourself in the process. And that comes through doing the right types of movements that your body was fit for. You know, fitting the types of training schemes into something that meets your skill level. And then again, just placing a foundation on some core competent movement patterns that are going to really keep you pain-free and develop the skills that will allow you to do whatever you want to do physically for a lifetime. And when I look at those movement patterns, I look at six big ones. Everyone should be able to squat to some extent, hip hinge, uh, like a deadlift, a single leg movement, like a lunge, pushing and pulling at the upper body. And people should be able to propel their body through space and locomotion. So like uh, walking, running, a loaded carry, for instance, if you can do these six things and you can keep them, you know, and hit save on the file in your movement library, then that's going to be the foundation that we're talking about. But it's a big misconception that we cannot stay pain free and get big, strong, jacked and lean at the same time. You know, I've built a career on this over the last 10 years is we can achieve the holy grail of results here. We just have to be a little bit more smart on the way that we're trying to achieve it. Yeah, I love that. And and let's jump into how you do that. Well, well, first you said something really important. You said people try to fit themselves to exercises. They try to fit themselves to exercise programs. I got a friend of mine, great guy. He's a bodyguard for like celebrities. And he was in an argument with me about if you're doing a Romanian deadlift, a stiff leg deadlift, or you know, with slight bend in the knees, that is just not acceptable. That's not a real deadlift. You got to pick it up from the floor. And I said, why? why? Right? What's the difference? Of course, if you're doing, and there is a difference, and we're not, don't need to get into it because the biomechanics and the, you know, it doesn't really matter that much because the point is that if you can't get into the proper position of a deadlift, 
off the and do it off the ground, then it it's not the right exercise for you. Yeah. So I hate to say it, but he is technically right. So a deadlift would be considered an exercise. A hip hinge movement pattern would be the big umbrella that a deadlift would fall under. So when you look at things as movement patterns, meaning that no specific exercise is mandatory to anyone to achieve any type of result, it really opens up your mind. You know, my big thing is in training, we want to hammer the muscles, we want to spare the joints. If we can elicit a training effect, if we can really go hard, go heavy, and we can keep all of our joints, especially our spine, in a good position where we're not adding to chronic wear and tear or even traumatic-based injuries, that's going to be something that people are going to feel challenged with, but they're also going to be able to create resilience. And when I talk about resilience, it's about getting strong, improving body composition, and building longevity in your training career. You know, that's really what resilience means to me. And that's a key word that we use with a lot of our people to try to shift their mindset away from some of these dogmatic approaches. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I forgot to mention his argument was that, you know, you won't get as good of results. And it's, <laughs> that was the argument. It wasn't whether- Quote unquote you know, results, right? Right, exactly. Whatever <laughs> that means. But uh, this is so important. Another thing that happened kind of recently is one of our coaching clients is having the, this really bad time with bad doms in his hamstrings from doing Romanian deadlifts. And he said, well, I was just doing four sets of eight. You know, I, didn't, I thought that was pretty low volume. And I said, it's not, <laughs> number one, it's not really low volume, but it's obviously, forget about the four sets of eight or five sets of five or three sets of 50, whatever it is, what is your body saying? right? And I know you're a big fan of that as well, because I've heard you talk about it before. And I feel like people, they go into the gym, they're trying to, again, like what you said earlier, trying to fit themselves to the program instead of trying to modify it. Can you talk about why everything is kind of modifiable and how we should modify it to make sure that we aren't getting these aches and pains um, along with the strength and and muscle gains? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Every single movement pattern that I mention, it is 110% able to be progressed or regressed, meaning that you can use more challenging setups in terms of tools or set and rep schemes or the type of tempo that you're using, or you can regress that back down and just make it more simple to take out more moving parts to get a little bit more stable and relearn the stuff. So every single movement pattern needs to be tapered to the individual. And really many of the the problems that I see people have is that they go in and there's just so much information out there. Uh, Say deadlifting to keep that example. You know, you might read five out of six articles that say you must deadlift from the floor to get strong and you must do it with the barbell. So, you know, the lay public might read that and be like, oh man, I better do this exercise. But here's how I differentiate it. If something causes you pain, the first thing to do is to try to improve your form because form is really going to be an indicator for pain-free training. And after that, if you're still having problems, most likely that specific exercise, it's just not built for you. And people, they go all or none. So it's like, I'm either going to freaking max deadlift with a barbell off the floor or I'm not going to hit the hip hinge pattern whatsoever. And that's a big mistake because as soon as we start neglecting movement patterns, we get asymmetries going, uh, we kind of fall apart functionally, 
and we just leave ourselves susceptible for chronic base injuries. So anytime that I try to write an article, it's always about proper execution. And if you can't do that, there's always a way to modify, to be a little bit more joint friendly, to make sure that you can do the movement without eliciting a pain response and actually getting something out of the movements. So like a deadlift, you know, the apex of all hip hinge movements would be the barbell deadlift off the floor. You know, people will say that's the only kind of deadlift, but that's bullshit. You know, really, you can go all the way back down to literally doing like an RDL-based movement, a hip hinge-based movement with body weight. And on top of that, you could even go down and get into like floor-dependent positions where you're either in like a quadruped position, on like all your hands and knees on the floor, or you can get up laying on your back or on your stomach. You know, there are many different ways. And when we look at like the last, uh, you know, five or six years in my programming model, we've been able to use the same type of blueprints with people that are literally coming out of pain, 50 and 60 year olds, as we do with Olympic athletes. And the way that we do that is we match the most challenging movement pattern that they can do under that movement umbrella. So they can train it hard, they can train it heavy, and they can stay pain-free with it. So it's all about individualizing something. Yeah, obviously couldn't agree more. I think, you know, (laughs) I haven't had anybody on this show where I'm like really butting heads with. Most of the people already (laughs) know what they're about, so I already respect them as a coach like I respect you, John. And if you're listening to John right now, you should really check out his Dr. John Russin, that's R-U-S-I-N, so drjohnrussin.com. He's a ton of information on there about the types of things that he's talking about right now. And I love that, man, you know, because there is a lot of, hey, you got a deadlift. Oh, if you want to develop a lot of strength or, or a lot of muscle, you have to do Olympic weight training. And John, man, uh, Olympic weight training, I have three herniated discs in my neck. There's just not, that's not happening for me right now. Maybe in the future <laughs> when I improve my shoulder flexion and, uh, you know, get my neck back in, back in action. But I love how you're opening it up and just saying, hey, listen, do the hardest movement pattern that you're able to. But wouldn't you agree that it comes down? Yeah, the exercise is important, but it comes down to the types of loading that you're doing. It comes down to the intensity or the volume or the, you know, the type of method that you're changing up. And if you do a deadlift or a Romanian deadlift or a back extension and you got some dumbbells in your hand, you're going to be working the uh, similar muscles and it's kind of more important, the types of methods and loading parameters that you use. Yeah, what do I you mean, think? there's there's a there's a slide in my presentation that I give with Chris in our seminars that literally goes through like my top four strength training pain free quotes that I've said in the past. And the number one quote that people just like they kind of like shake their head at, but they kind of know to be true, is that you cannot let ego drive your training. You must let intelligence drive your training. So everyone is going to have some sort of ego when they walk into the gym. Either they want a quick result or they really think that, you know, adding 10 more pounds to the bar, that's going to make the biggest difference in the world. But when you step aside and you say like, what's the risk to reward of every single thing that you do? It becomes very clear that, you know, a, a day by day or a training session by training session approach, it has its faults. And when you look at the longevity of setting goals, you know, a short-term goal within uh, six to eight weeks or even a long-term goal within years, 
that keeps your mindset where it needs to be. And it kind of allows you to step aside from your ego a bit and actually give your body what it needs instead of force feeding things that aren't going to be lining up with that long-term longevity-based goal. Yeah, well said. And something I think is also important that I come across a lot, especially with, I, I deal, I know you work with a, a wide variety of people from Olympic athletes to pro athletes to, you know, regular Janes and, and, and Joes. I work specifically with, with CEOs of multi-million dollar companies, or at least that's where I've ended myself up at, at the moment yeah. for my uh, in-person personal training. And one thing, these guys love to measure the numbers. They love to <laughs> think about how many sets, how many reps, and if they speed up the tempo of their exercise, as long as they hit that mark. But what I try to tell people is you're not really in there to lift a bunch of weight or to do a bunch of reps or sets. You're really in there to stimulate the muscle enough to drive some type of a change without overdoing it and, and creating too much soreness or a tendon problem. What do you say about that? Do you, and how do you coach people on that mindset? Yeah, that's really interesting, Ted, because uh, I've worked uh, in my career with a lot of like high performance people, not in the gym, but in the rest of their life, like that CEO type uh, person. And these people, you know, they're just as competitive as your athlete that makes $10 million on the field on Sundays. And you have to go and look back at, you know, the risk to reward again. I've seen that in my career, especially with general fitness population, those AAA type personalities, that if you can give them that neurotransmitter rush, you know, you can give them the thrill of training while, you know, decreasing the relative loads while trying to keep their efforts high, you can actually get them feeling like they accomplish more just from the type of neurological state that you can end their workouts in. So for these kind of guys, I love training them early mornings because you can literally get them doing some explosive work. You can be getting them going balls to the wall and you can keep it a little bit shorter, lower volume. And it's all about the feel good effect for them because like, do they really give a shit about the gym? Like they do when they're in the real time. But as soon as they step out of your doors, they're going into the real world where they're about to dominate. So stepping back and looking at people's goal set of like, why are you really training? Most people are really training not to be fucking awesome at training, but to actually enhance their lives. So if you look at a CEO, does he have more energy in front of the boardroom? If you look at a mother of four, does she have more energy when the kids are running around and she's multitasking five things at once? You know, you look at guys like us, can we actually create a resiliency where we can be doing this for the next 40 years? So you really have to break it down. And that's where communication comes in with a lot of your clients. It's what is the big picture? Usually losing 10 pounds is not the big picture. It's what are you going to do because of this one single body composition or strength metric? What can you do that you're not currently doing? Yeah, I love that you get people focused on that. And the 10 pounds doesn't usually happen without some nutrition modification, which is really difficult <laughs> when you're at business meetings and downing a bottle or three of wine and perhaps some scotch. So yeah, I love how you answered that, even though <laughs> you didn't talk about the, the muscle uh, part, but yeah, <laughs> it's, but you're right. Maybe, maybe that's more important for some people. Maybe it isn't about seeing that 
that muscle growing. Maybe it's about feeling badass so that when you go into the, the boardroom, you just knocked out 20 fast push-ups for, for three Absolutely. sets. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, you point. look at, yeah, you look at our mindset, uh, our industry is stuck in the mechanical model. The mechanical model is we're going to make X amount of changes with the muscle tissue. We're going to make X amount of changes with the fat on the body. And we are going to do that by lifting X amount of weight more. But when you step back a little bit, like people really don't give a shit about that. Long-term, yes, the, all that stuff's going to happen. But if you can look at the feel effect of what you're doing, does your training invigorate you? That's what's going to keep you consistent. That's what's going to keep you from burning out You know, after six or eight weeks. If it excites you and it's still sane from the mechanical model, you know, that's something that people are going to gravitate towards and everyone's going to be a little bit different. And it just goes back to show that you must be experimenting with new things, but it is more than just making the muscles bigger or losing fat around your belly. It's the way that it enhances a lifestyle from a neurological perspective. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. And you mentioned something really important that you know we've talked about on the show before. You said the neurotransmitter effect. In other words, how a person feels based on the neurochemical changes elicited by a certain form of training. Because you know, CrossFitters love CrossFit. And even though sometimes you really don't see some dramatic transformations in physiques, but they freaking love it. And yep. I would ask you, um, what happens when you have a person who is a little emotionally attached or perhaps even addicted to a type of training, but then they want these other goals or adaptations that aren't occurring. Like, hey, I want bigger muscles, but I still want to, you know, I don't know, run every day for my 20 miles or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's two ways to look at programming and changing stuff up on people. There's the addition by addition, like doing some new shit that may, you know, elicit a better training response based on their goals. And then there's the addition by subtraction, getting them away from the stupid stuff that they're doing to try to more fine tune what they're doing in their training, their nutrition, their lifestyle habits, their foundational sleep and stress. That is where it comes in because many times people are just kind of pigeonholing themselves, not due to the hour. Uh, you know, three days a week that they spend with you or in the gym, but all that other stuff, the other 23 hours of the day times seven days a week times four weeks in a month, you know, you get what I'm saying here. It's about uh, trying to holistically look at somebody's lifestyle. And sometimes, you know, if you have a good rapport, having those conversations with people that, hey man, you're killing it in the gym right now. We're not really seeing a huge amount of muscle gain. We're not seeing fat loss but I know you're sleeping two and a half hours a night and you're drinking three bottles of wine a night. You know, like those lifestyle factors I think are huge, but, you know, trying to make the mental shift. I have it pretty easy professionally now because people that are seeking out my services, they're coming to a roadblock. They know that they must change something that they're doing because they're either hurt or they are on a performance plateau. If they're like a power lifter, Olympic lifter, or CrossFitter that we see. So when you look at those things, people have to come to the realization that what they're doing is not currently working ideally. It doesn't mean that you have to throw everything away and go to another polar opposite dogmatic approach. It means that you just have to fine tune the real big linchpins in their lifestyle, their training, or their nutrition dysfunction. Yeah. 
And if you're listening right now and you love a certain type of exercise, but you're not seeing results with it, uh, John just uh, gave you a bit of perspective. So thanks for that, John. Let's take this in a little bit of a different direction. I know uh, you, because I've read several articles of yours, I know you're a fan of different types of mobility and stretching. Um, What's hot right now, at least what I see with the more savvy fitness consumers, they're doing the things that I was learning from Paul Check like 18 years ago, (laughs) doing like 20 minutes of foam rolling and a bunch of stretching. And, um, you know, I... I don't really use so much anymore. I mean, it's a tool that I pull out if someone is having problems getting into a proper squat or what I consider at least a proper squat or or other, uh, you know, movement pattern. Can you talk a little bit about those implements, how you use them, how you think about them, and also the controversy around stretching? I would love to hear your perspectives uh, coming from, you know, someone who works with a lot of people who are injured. Yeah. So, I mean, you look at uh, these two things. So you have like soft tissue work, AKA foam rolling, and then you have mobility, which is mostly stretching. You look at both of these things uh, combined as parasympathetic work. So basically we're trying to, you know, rest and recover and try to enhance the way that you are feeling and functioning. So when you look at it like that, if you're just trying to tap into the parasympathetic nervous system it can happen very, very quickly. For the foam roller, for instance, there's really no need to be going and foam rolling every single nook or cranny before you get in and train. That's actually going to deter away from the training effect that that's the reason that you're in the gym in the first place from. So when we actually program foam rolling or any type of soft tissue work, it's very strategic and we do it with a results-oriented prescription meaning that if we cannot see an objective difference positively from the practice, then we're either going to do something different or we're not going to do it at all. So when you look at trying to objectify something as subjective as foam rolling, you know, with the feel-good effect, it becomes a little bit more challenging. So we try to make people buy into one or two different techniques on the foam roller. So we try to think about the big thing the big thing, if we change that and we improve that, that it would really just help everything else out. You know, that's defined as the linchpin of dysfunction. And we have them do that. And instead of going over 16 different sites on the body, we have them do one to two and we have them spend anywhere from one to three minutes a day on it. That is it. Above and beyond that, it becomes a ritualistic practice. It becomes something that people just like hope and pray that it's actually working. You know, this foam roller is going to keep me healthy because I haven't been hurt in two weeks. That's not what we want. We want actually objective data that's saying that this is freaking helping us. When you do that, you're going to waste a lot less time and you're going to get better results. So you look at stretching being very, very similar. And man, like uh, I worked with a couple uh, pro triathletes on like the Ironman circuit. And these people, you know, over the last 10 years have been force fed the idea that, you know, you better be stretching 45 minutes every single night after you train. And they are literally flaring themselves up over stretching. And when you look at stretching, you, you mean nothing- physically flaring themselves up or, or physically flaring yeah, themselves gotcha. up? Yeah. <laughs> You know, throughout the course of my career, I've seen some crazy shit. I've seen literally people injure themselves on a foam roller. I've seen people tear things stretching. 
the kind of stuff that like when you look at like a passive modality like rolling and stretching, like people fuck themselves up on. You'd be surprised. And uh, you know, when you look at stretching, we need to be doing the base minimum of what we can get an objective result from. Nothing more, nothing less. And really, people, I hear it all the time. It's like, oh, my hamstrings are so tight. I can't touch my toes. I've never been able to. We try to think that mobility, whether it's stretching or foam rolling, is going to somehow cure everything. You know, mobility is a fix-all. That's what we've been told. And it's truly not. And many times it wastes a lot of people's time and it actually exacerbates uh, chronic-based injuries in the process. So when we do use stretching, again, it's going to be a one to three minute block. It's going to be on specific tissues. And this is the most important part. It's going to be an authentic stretch versus a compensatory stretch. Meaning if you have to like contort your body, you have to literally like flex your spine over, dump your pelvis, torque your knee in order to like get a stretch-based feel in the muscle that you're going after. That's not something I'm interested in doing. I want to make sure that everything in the body stays in a neutral position. We have torque, we have tension, we have stability through the spines, the hips, the shoulders, and we're actually having internal tension the way that we're actually controlling our own body uh, with the ability to achieve a targeted stretch on whatever the tissue that you're after. So if you look at it like that, you know, it's a total game changer because the only reason you're stretching or foam rolling is just so you're better when you're doing shit that actually matters, which is active movement. Yeah, I love that. And uh, I think it might be important for someone listening who's having, well, I'll tell you a, sh- a brief story, one I think you'll appreciate. I had a client, a super flexible client, in fact, uh, hypermobile, right? And he complained of tightness all the time, low back tightness, <laughs> and he stretched like crazy, wanted me to stretch him more, meets with his physical therapist, has even more stretching. I'm like, dude, you're unstable. You're causing these problems by continuing to stretch your muscles. Can you talk a little bit about how you're not really stretching tissue? You're you're resetting the the mechanoreceptors and can you not not too technical, but just like why is that guy wrong and why is he making himself worse? Well, first off, you know, you don't stretch or you don't foam roll somebody that has huge amounts of mobility. You do not fix mobility-based deficits with more mobility. We fix it with stability. And when you look at the interplay between mobility and stability, meaning like a really good movement uh, at like a distal extremity, like a shoulder or a hip, you know, it can move through ranges of motion, feel good, not feel tight. It's dependent on you being able to stabilize around the spine, the pelvis, the hips and the shoulders. That is, uh, you know, those three things together are comprise the pillar. So pillar stability yields distal mobility and function. But when you look at the mechanical model versus the neurological model, again, you know, it's no different from training. Mechanically, we are not breaking up scar tissue. We are not lengthening muscles. Nothing is changing anatomically. So that is a big misconception. That is a big myth that I literally need to bust in front of, you know, expert coaches in our seminar series. And it's something that like literally I always see people shaking their heads like that was the first time that they've ever heard it. And (laughs) it always blows my mind. So knowing that we're not breaking up scar tissue, uh, we are not making muscles longer. Like what are we actually doing? Sure. We're tapping into the plasticity, the ability to change 
the tone of muscles and the tone of tissues, meaning like the resting tightness. And the way that we do that is we stimulate different portions of the tissues that we're going after uh, where the nerve inserts into the muscle. So we try to get central nervous system and peripheral nervous system, like the nerves that are running through the body, just to make sure that those muscles chill the fuck out. You know, there's a lot of deep science behind it, but literally we're going after these acute myofascial trigger points, these areas of the tissue that really feel like shit when you get a foam roller on them or when you stretch them. And, you know, through very, very uh, savvy positions and well-orchestrated drills that we do with these things, we can alleviate the tightness. It's not breaking up scar tissue. It is alleviating tightness through a mechanism in the central nervous system. So that's a really important thing because people go chasing themselves with the foam roller. You know, I've seen people come in bruised to shit on their IT bands. Like, hey, I was just trying to lengthen the IT band. And then it's, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about this for about 45 minutes. Uh, There's no lengthening happening. Or people that come in and they're just super overstretched to the point where their body is just feeling so vulnerable to instabilities that they tighten up even worse. And that's one I see a lot of. So many times we don't need to be doing more mobility stuff. We need to be actually moving better with better stable positions. Yeah. And, you know, obviously agree with you 100% there. Having been down all those roads years earlier, I think something interesting to talk about is loaded stretching. I first started doing that with my gymnastics training. When I say gymnastics, I mean for people who aren't very good at gymnastics, right? Like the the gymnastics bodies, 40-year-old guys like myself (laughs) with, with a bunch of injuries. I know you're a fan of that. Christian Thibodeau is a fan of that. However, Dr. Joel Seidman, who I know you know, he's not a fan of that. He doesn't like the idea of loading a joint in uh, what he would say to be an excessive position. But subjectively, I've had a lot of benefit from that. Can you talk about maybe, obviously, you know, Joel's not here we can't ask them and get into a conversation about it, but can you just talk a little bit about how you use loaded stretching, why you use it, and and uh, maybe what are you familiar with Joel's thoughts on that? Yeah, Joel's a good friend of mine, and I, I hate, like we're not going to throw him under the bus here because we definitely agree on this. CT Joel and I we talk a lot. We're really good friends, and I'd say we agree in like ninety nine percent of the things. And when you look at loaded stretching, all it is is an accentuated eccentric with an isometric. So Joel, just because I'm such good buddies with him, I know that he did his doctoral dissertation on accentuated eccentric isometrics. And that's exactly what we're talking about with loaded stretching. So (laughs) he does do it and he does believe in it. The key is that when you do it poorly, when you're hanging out on joint capsules, when you're in extended ranges of motion, which is you know kind of uh, just a piss poor way to be executing loaded stretches, then it becomes a huge issue. And I definitely agree that if you're doing it like that, you are going to be on the fast track to a serious injury. You know, if you think about being under a load, putting your joints into an extended range of motion that you have to force through, compensating and then trying to hold that position for X amount of seconds or minutes, like that's just an injury waiting to happen. But I think uh, loaded stretching gets a bad rap because people think that it's passive. Loaded stretching, when done correctly, you know, let's use a, a, a dumbbell bench press as an example. 
when executed correctly, you do like, you know, your last set of eight reps, you barely get that eighth rep. And then on the way back down, you go real slow and you make sure that those dumbbells come down slowly to the chest. You keep keep under control with the tension that you have throughout your entire body. So your spine, your glutes, obviously the shoulders, those lats contracting. And then you let them down into a range of motion that you can still control without compensating. And that there is the loaded stretch position. So we fight to maintain that position. We never fault into a compensated movement pattern because this is, uh, you know, this is a highly, highly complex and advanced training protocol. So just with you people listening, like, you know, unless you're an intermediate to an advanced athlete that has some, um, some serious movement capacity, I would not be messing around with this stuff too much. But when you look at the actual mechanisms themselves, it's like, it's the perfect training tool because you can get jacked doing it. You can build muscle. You can enhance mobility. And uh, the reason Joel uses a lot of this stuff is it enhances uh, the mind-muscle connection and the functional like neurology of things. So it really enhances your ability to be an agile athlete, especially with the joints involved. But it's, uh, it's something that is so new in the industry, even though it's like 20 years old, that people just don't understand it. And every single time that I shoot an Instagram video or a YouTube video or write an article on T Nation about it, uh, we get so many questions because people just uh, think it's passive. You know, stretching is not always passive. A passive stretch would literally be you going limp at the body like somebody shot you up with drugs and you passed out and then stretched your body passively. That's not happening. There's active components to stretching and that's what makes it transferable into function if you do it correctly. Yeah, well, isn't every stretch a loaded eccentric isometric stretch? Absolutely. Unless someone (laughs) is passed out and and you're being manipulated. I mean, it's always an eccentric isometric. I guess what I was asking is so I'll give you an example and thanks for that explanation, by the way. And I think you also mentioned something really important, unless you know what a compensatory movement is and uh, you you probably shouldn't be trying this stuff, but we're going to be talking (laughs) about it anyway. So let's take a dip, for example. So what you're saying is, because Joel, I'm a big fan of his stuff. He's been on the podcast a bunch of times as well. Can't say we're like close friends, but uh, definitely consider him a, a very good buddy who I who I reach out to. But let's say he doesn't like going past say a ninety degree angle on a dip, for example. In some of the loaded stretches that I did in the gymnastics, you want to yes keep tension on the muscles and obviously no no weird contorting of your body to get deeper into a stretch, but take it to the limit. And is that what you're talking about? Yeah, there's taking it to the limit, and then there's just uh, the inability for people to be able to control their positions. So I, I kind of see it as one and the same. And when you look at a dip, uh, you know, a dip or any upper body pushing or pulling, the position or like that, it's really hard. I should say it's really hard writing articles sometimes because you write something and you're thinking about an avatar in your head that you've worked with in the past and had good success with. Is it going to work for everyone? Fuck no, but it's going to work for a majority of people. But there's always those outliers out there. So when you look at like the example of 90 degrees, uh, going past 90 degrees on the dip, you know, if your shoulder joint socket, like if the head of your humerus and, and, you know, the piece of your scapula where those two things meet is so unique that you can keep in a perfect position through 110 degrees, so be it. 
you know, there's no hard and fast rules when it comes to joint biomechanics or arthrokinematics or any body positioning. It's all based off of the feel. And that's why I put such a large emphasis on making sure that people can feel stability. They can feel the types of things that we're after in terms of if we're doing a loaded movement, we're actually feeling the tissues work that we're trying to hit. And they have a relationship with their body and the types of movements that they're doing as opposed to just going through the motions and moving, you know, weight from point A to point B aimlessly. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good answer. And yeah, that makes total sense. I was kind of asking a little bit for a selfish reason, but also it's been brought up on here a, a few times, um, you know, managing the range of motion through an exercise, but that's a great point. Yeah, a big, uh, you know, something about range of motion is that you should only be loading through a range of motion that you have 110% control over from a stability standpoint. If you cannot do a full range of motion with something, most likely you could use another variation of that movement pattern. But as soon as you have limitations, it's not good enough just to regress the movement pattern down. You have to have some sort of strategy to try to improve whatever that deficit is. So yes, you can train harder, you can train heavier if you do the right movement pattern for your body. But unless it's like a, like a bony anatomy issue, which there are, you know, a couple percent of the time, most other people, they just don't have the skill or the movement capacity. You know, you look at motor control. If they don't have the motor control, then they have to enhance it some way. And that's where corrective exercises or activation drills, you know, all of the kind of fluffy stuff comes in and it does play a role. Yeah, I love uh, activation, corrective exercise not fan of that term, even though I used to use it. <laughs> Don't need to go down that uh, oh, down no, that no, rabbit no. hole, though. But yeah, very important. I'm curious, John. Um, you know it, the what I talk about here, and I'm interested in your perspective on this because obviously I didn't I'm not a physical therapist. Although I, tr you know, the Czech Institute tried to make us a little bit into a <laughs> physical therapist, and I said this is not what I do. And so anyway. Oh, yeah, I know he, uh, you know, I love Paul Check. really opened things up for me, but you, you're like, hey, maybe I should just focus on getting people stronger and, you know, know enough to know when to refer out and whatever. But I, that was just a little joke for you and the, the other fitness people. Um, but man, you know, the, the way when I talk about injuries, there's like the biomechanical perspective. So like this squat hurts my knee or my knee hurts when I do a lunge and, um, you know, probably because of some altered stability issue with the structures of, of the knee or, or overhead pressing is another great example that so many people have problems with because the, they don't have the proper range of motion or, you know, that uh supraspinatus tendon is getting jammed up on the chromium too much or whatever it is. Um, but there's also kind of a biochemical or physiological uh, reason why things get inflamed too if people's diets are out of whack or they're not eating enough calories to repair their tissue, can you talk a little bit about how you view the non-biomechanical, the non-exercise, the non-stretching, the non-physical modality stuff? What, what do you use to help people get better? Yeah. I mean, anytime somebody comes in with like uh, movement pain or movement dysfunction where it elicits pain, the first thing to do is make sure that it's not the exercise that's doing it. It's the way that they're butchering it that's actually eliciting the pain response. Like a vast majority of time, if we can just enhance the way that people are moving, they're going to be pain-free quickly. 
And that, you know, that happens from getting two eyes on people and actually being a coach. But above and beyond that, we have people that fall through the cracks. We can fix all the biomechanics. We can fix all the stability patterns. And they're still having chronic base pain. You know, I look at the foundations of human life as being able to sustain nutritional habits that are sound, hydration habits, sleep, and stress. There's something systemically in the body that you cannot get world-class results or you cannot achieve you know, even better world-class results if you don't take down these foundations first. You think about it being like the base level of a pyramid. You, know, you cannot build the building blocks upon that base level if they're not there in the first place. And if you are, you're just kind of, if you're trying to add high performance into the equation, you're building this pyramid on a house of cards. So it's, it's very hard sometimes to have these conversations with people about being overweight or about sleeping three hours a night or, you know, drinking too much or going out on uh, shitty food binges. But sometimes what I try to do is use relative tests in order for them to connect the dots themselves. What I mean by that is like a relative strength test. If somebody's coming in and they're like, they have 40 pounds to lose, but they think that they're big, strong, and awesome, you know, sometimes to streamline their mindset about picking up their stress habits or their nutritional habits, hey, can you do eight strict pull-ups from a dead hang or not? You know, that's a relative strength test that we use for people, not because we need more jacked lats, but because we want to have objectable results that we can, or, uh, you know, data that we can actually drive results from. So does that happen with getting stronger? Sure. But would it help by losing 20 pounds of non-contractile tissues in the body, AKA fat? Hell yes, it would. So sometimes you just have to, you have to be a real life problem solver and a human being that is capable of communicating very, very hard issues to people in a way that they're not offended from. Because people, they get offended if you tell them that they're fat or if you tell them that they're not in shape or if they're at risk for diabetes or you know, a host of different things. But if you can actually show them with objectable data that, hey, this is where we're at, but this is where we need to be. And then you bring up some of those factors. You know, that's a huge thing. It's a, it's a paradigm shift that you can make essentially on the same action that you're going to be taking anyways. Yeah, I like that. And, and I know you just came out with an article about strength tests, right? Just, just <laughs> yeah. dropped today, right? Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to look at it, but I will read it and I will put it on the show notes for this episode. And I think it's important, although it's an arbitrary measure, it's like, hey, can you do, even do one pull-up, let alone eight? And if you can't, then that's probably an issue. It's probably something that you need to work on, even if you consider yourself a big, strong guy. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff, John. Anytime you're testing something too, if it's a test, not everybody should be passing the test. You look at the bell-shaped curve like you're back in college. X amount of people are going to fail. X amount of people are going to get 100%. And then there's going to be you know, these people in the middle. We use tests and we use assessments to gain data to try to put bull sets in place. And if everyone was passing tests, you know, everyone bitches and moans that they can't do it. 
like, good, we just got some good data so you can enhance whatever it is in your lifestyle that is that weakest link. You know, that's really the, the, big, the big takeaway of an article like that. Yeah, and uh, I tell you, even personally, I get so much more motivated when there's some type of performance goal that I'm trying to hit instead of focusing on like, yeah, making my biceps grow. I'm, <laughs> I'm just more of an athlete. I think in general, at least my experience with probably the hundreds of people that I've trained in, in, in the 18 years I've been in the industry, it's been like that as well. There's few people who are super motivated by you know, just getting big and huge or, or whatever. It's really like, oh, I can do 15 push-ups. I can do my first pull-up. I can do dips with my body weight now. You know, I've always seen that or, or deadlift 300 pounds. So great point, John. Is there any point that you'd like to end this interview on? I, I think that for your audience, you know, there is so much information out there. There's so many different programs. There's so many different experts. I think you just taking a step back and going down the rabbit hole and just making sure that you're getting your information from a sound source, uh, you're doing the types of things that are going to be sustainable for a lifetime, and you're trying to create habits, whether it be with your training, your nutrition, or your lifestyle, just getting better habits that will work for you for a lifetime. That's really the key with anything. Yeah. All about the adherence, something that you'll do. Great message there, John. And if you'd like to learn more about what John does, and if you'd like to read his information, which I highly recommend that you do, go to Dr. John Russin. That's D-R-J-O-H-N-R-U-S-I-N.com. So drjohnrussin.com. John, it's been a pleasure. This is the first time that we sat down and, and had a chance to talk. So thanks so much for sharing your time, your knowledge, and uh, looking forward to doing this again, my friend. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Welcome to the TED's Takeaways part of the podcast. This is where I talk about my biggest takeaways or what I think were the most important takeaways for you in this interview. And the first one is make sure you're learning from the right people in the industry. And I know that can be tough because there's so many people out there and it's hard to tell when someone has great marketing, but they're not good, or they have crappy marketing, but they're really good, or the rarity where someone is also both good in marketing and their craft. But John is a solid place to learn things from. I follow a bit of a different perspective. However, I enjoy some of his articles and some of the stuff that he shares, I think is solid. So make sure you go to his website, drjohnrussin.com and check things out. Check out what he's got going on. Number two is if you are chronically getting injured, you are not doing things right. You should not be chronically injured or getting injured when you go to the gym. That's just how that should be. Now, if you're playing a sport, you're playing football, if you're doing a little MMA or Brazilian jiu-jitsu or grappling, okay, though injuries happen in sports, but while you're in a controlled environment in the gym, you should not be getting injured. The only exception to that would probably be people who, like CrossFit people who kind of treat exercise as a sport. Again, that is uh, nothing against CrossFit, although I do have my 
things that I like about it, things that I don't like about it. But that's an example of where you're pushing the limits, probably going to get hurt or even powerlifting for that matter. But if you're in there for general fitness and you're getting hurt, you're doing yourself a huge disservice because once those little minor nagging injuries become chronic and become greater injuries, and then all of a sudden, mm, my knee, I can't do lunges anymore. I can't do squats anymore. You're going to have to do some of the funky stuff like I have to do. Or if you've been in a car accident like me and have three herniated discs in your neck, you're going to have to watch out with your overhead pressing exercises and and you know, all types of things. So you don't want to get to that point. And if you're already at that point, then the third thing is make sure you're doing some mobility work. Make sure you do some flexibility work. In the interview, John kind of, uh, we didn't talk about the distinction between mobility and flexibility. To me, mobility exercises or activation exercises, it's just a semantic thing there. But that's what I call mobility exercises where you're working on activating certain muscles so you achieve a greater range of motion, greater control through a greater range of motion. So, But the point is, make sure you're doing something in the gym to prepare you to ramp up your nervous system, to, to warm up your joints and your muscles, and make sure you're doing that because that will help you if you are already injured, or if you're not, it will help you prevent injuries. And let me tell you, injury prevention, that's a tough one because if you're not injured, you just don't care usually. And that's how I was. And now I have to care. So if you're in that situation, try to be smart, try to learn from other people so you don't have to learn the hard way like many of us have had to. Those are my three biggest takeaways. I hope you learned a lot. And if you've been working out hard in the gym, but you're not seeing the belly fat leave your physique, even though you're working out hard or perhaps you're on a diet or nutrition program and it's not getting you results, I want you to go to my legendary 90-day fat loss blueprint waiting list on legendarylightpodcast.com. Sign up for the waiting list. This will work for you 100% if you follow it or I will give you your money back. And there's no weird tricks or supplements or craziness, anything like that. It's a simple approach based on your weight, your body fat, and your activity levels. And I've just put it together in a plan where I take people through it. It's going to be awesome. People are going to lose fat. People are going to see their abs for the first time. People are going to also learn how to maintain that. So if that sounds good to you, go to legendarylightpodcast.com, click on the store, and sign up for the legendary 90-day fat loss blueprint. That's all I've got. Have an amazing week, and I'll speak to you soon.